Hey everybody, Michael Gunger here. Hello, Emily Capshaw here. We're so excited to tell you about two new events that we're launching this fall. The first is called Commune. Commune is a two-night intensive that we'll be bringing to a bunch of different cities where anybody from any background, any place in your faith experience or your beliefs, you're all welcome to come experience community that's not based in a common fundamentalist belief, but instead is a radically inclusive universal space for community. So there will be sessions and teachings and song and dance and opportunities to connect with each other in person and be seen and heard and leave on a love high. Yeah, commune is great for like deconstructing Christians and people who want to find community together that are not interested in strict dogma or fundamentalism or anything like that. And then for those of you who want to go deeper, who want to engage in some spiritual practice together that's a little more intense and maybe a little wilder, (laughs) uh, exploring unitive consciousness with each other, the one retreat may be the perfect fit for you. In fact, you could do both. We're actually going to do the commune events in these cities followed immediately by the one retreat. So it would be possible for you to do both or either. We're bringing these events to Nashville and to Chicago and to Atlanta and to the LA area with more events to be added soon. Go to theliturgists.com and you can see some videos about these events, read a little bit more about them and grab some tickets if you'd like. We'd love to see you. These episodes are crafted to be tools that aid in uprooting old narratives that limit and constrain us. And sometimes hearing things that challenge those narratives can feel uncomfortable. We can feel attacked and unreceptive. So here are a few tips for how to approach listening to this season. First, let's start by taking a breath together. Tuning into our bodies and remembering that we are safe. And if at any point you notice that something presented feels like it's pushing against a belief or a story, take that as an opportunity to become curious and begin an inner inquiry, which is the process of questioning what our mind is presenting to us. One way to do this is by identifying that belief statement in your mind and asking questions like, is this true? Where did I learn this? What do I gain from this belief? What do I lose from this belief? Trust your body and take space when you need to. And finally, this episode will end with a tool or practice that can be used to help you in this process. So you can come back to that tool as much as you need, and it will also be posted in the Patreon feed. Enjoy the episode. Imagine for a moment that you get to take a trip to Paris. Paris is one of the most romantic and magical cities in the world. But imagine that when you get there, you notice that, you know, you see all the beautiful architecture, you see the cafes and the shops, but maybe you don't feel like you fully get it. You know, lots of cities have nice architecture and shops. So in an attempt to dive deeper into French history and culture and understand more of that famous Parisian allure, you sign up for a tour of the city. Your group assembles at the base of the Eiffel Tower, which is taller than you expected it to be, and you feel excited, you feel an anticipation, you're looking forward to learning more about this famous tower and this beautiful city, 
in order to more fully experience and enjoy your visit. Why is this tower here? Who built it? When did they build it? What sort of interesting anecdotes will the tour guide share with you about it? So the tour guide comes up and introduces himself to the group. Hello, everyone. My name is John. He says in an American accent, apparently. <laughs> and this, and this, he gestures his arm towards the tower, is a tower. He smiles, satisfied with himself. That'll be 50 euros, please. So how would you feel about a tour guide like that? Probably not great. <laughs> You'd probably be, you know, a little upset about paying 50 euros for a tour that just has a guy saying this is a tower. And why is that? He pointed out, said what it is, gave you a tour in some way. But the truth is, that's not what a tour is, right? A tour is not just pointing at things and calling them names. You take tours because we want to hear stories. If you're looking at an old pile of rocks in Rome, you don't just want somebody to point out the old pile of rocks. You want them to tell you, what that old pile of rocks used to be part of, this ancient story. This is not just a tree. This is a tree planted by Julius Caesar himself. Or this rock in the middle of a desert. It's not just a pile of rocks. This is a space rock that came from this asteroid a billion years ago, right? You want to know some kind of story that makes the otherwise mundane thing that you're looking at just a building or a structure or a tree come to life in a new way. In a way, tour groups are, they're really just storytelling groups. And when you think about it, that's kind of what all groups are. It's kind of what makes a group a group. We tell stories that bind us together, that help us to experience the world in similar ways. And despite the individualistic ideas that so many of us are mired in in the West, you are part of a tour group. <laughs> You're part of a storytelling group, whether you know it or like it or not. Some of us grew up with tour guides that point at a tree and say, this is a tree. You should cut this down and make money with it. Others of us have tour guides that say, this tree is an ancestor of yours. You should honor it. Others have tour guides that say this so-called tree is essentially a set of collapsing probability waves being observed by the universe. And how you experience this particular tree is completely influenced by your tour guide. Whether that tree in your experience is a magical deity to worship or an insidious demon to battle or just a meaningless arrangement of atoms to ignore is completely dependent on the stories that you have taken in from your tour group about that tree. So how is life affected when the story that the tour guides have told us is that we are inherently sinful creatures because our original ancestors did something that the creator of the world didn't want them to do And now we have to do something in order to make peace between us and our source. We have to believe something about him or do something to please him. What does it do when the creator is referred to as a he exclusively, by the way? 
What does it do when it's the woman who ate of the fruit? These stories that we teach children and we're taught ourselves have real consequences. They really do fundamentally influence how we experience our lives. And not abstractly, our lives now, here, in these bodies, in this moment. How do we experience our bodies with that story being the founding story? How do we view other people's bodies? How do we view sex, money, work, creativity? What happens when we've been told that the creator of the universe is somehow other or separate from the universe? And that we are somehow separate from both the universe and its source. How does a story like that affect our experience of this very moment? How you're experiencing the feeling of your feet on the ground right now. Your tongue in your mouth right now. The sound of my voice in your ears right now. How is this very experience of life? being shaped by stories, stories that we might not even think we believe in, but stories that our tour guides have framed all of this through, about who we are, about who we, where we came from, about what we're supposed to be doing with all of this sensation right now, a framework of good and bad. In this episode of the Liturgist Podcast, we'd like to invite you into the Genesis story that so many of us have been taught. And in the beginning of that exploration, I'd like to just remind us that stories, even the stories that create the meanings and the contexts, are always situated in context themselves. The stories all work together to create a worldview. And sometimes hearing stories from other perspectives, from other tour groups, if you will, can kind of help round out our stories and give us a perspective that maybe we hadn't seen before because we kept looking only from this one vantage point. So to begin, let's hear a little bit of the Genesis story and then hear of the same event, the Big Bang, the beginning of the universe, the origins of humankind from a little different perspective from a different tour group and and let's see how that how those things play together and what does that do to our experience of the story of genesis the christian bible in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth now the earth was formless and empty darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the waters And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, 
Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. From the Hindu Upanishads, in the beginning there was existence alone, one only, without a second. Reflecting, it found nothing but itself, and its first word was, "This am I." He, the One, thought to himself, "Let me be many. Let me grow forth." Thus, out of himself, he projected the universe. And having projected out of himself the universe, he entered into every being. All that is has itself in him alone. Of all things, he is the subtle essence. He is the truth. He is the self. Then he realized, I indeed am this creation, for I have poured it forth from myself. In that way, he became this creation. And verily, he who knows this becomes in this creation a creator. Thanks to our readers Leon Karagosian and Distinctly Unique for reading those passages. On the surface, these stories seem to be contradictory. In the Genesis story, God is portrayed as creating something other than Himself, and in the Upanishads, what we think of as being creation, is portrayed as God himself, taking on different forms, creating from himself. And on the surface level, probably especially for those of us who have gone through you know, some deconstruction and how we approach our understanding of myths and metaphors, we might see the differences between these stories as mere theological musings that don't matter much outside of theology nerd circles and fundamentalists. But I'd like to argue that regardless of whether you have any belief in any God, whether you assign any authority to scriptures or not, the creation narrative of your particular tour group impacts the experience of your life, impacts your culture, how you relate to people, how you see yourself and others in drastic and profound ways. Because these creation myths, they not only create the notion of who we think we are, but they reflect and underlie the notion of who we think we are and how we organize ourselves politically and relationally. It all is influenced by who we think we are and where we think we came from and where we're going. Our, the, the narrative that underlies our society impacts us all, whether or not you are a Christian. If you live in the Genesis-infused Christendom of the West, because it is a foundational story for Christendom, you likely see yourself as someone who is made by someone or something else. Obviously, most people would think they're made by God. But even if you're a secular humanist and you have no belief in any gods or supernatural stuff, 
you likely see yourself as made by the universe or the laws of nature or natural selection or whatever else that may be somehow fundamentally felt as separate from you. You're something made by it. This way of seeing is so fundamental to how most of us see ourselves and therefore everything else that it can be difficult to even imagine a different orientation to life than me being something that is alive as opposed to me being life itself. The Genesis-based view that underlies so much of our civilization doesn't just affect fundamentalists or Christians. It affects all of us. A Genesis-based culture is a culture of alienation, separateness, of duality, black and white, male and female, good and evil, us and them. It's a culture that bases itself on power, on victim and perpetrator, a culture who feels its separation from the earth in order to have dominion over it. It's a culture that will nail the Christ to the cross wherever it finds him. But what if we viewed Genesis not as a historical story about what happened in the past, not as a way of further dividing reality into two, but instead as a way of remembering who we are before we start dividing ourselves up like we do so quickly, before we start blaming and judging ourselves or others, before we start scapegoating. For me, when I hear Genesis through a lens that is non-dual, I notice that this moment is creation. That Genesis is not just a story about what was, but a story about what is. The ever new moment of existence. The bleeding edge of the Big Bang, as Carlos Rovelli has described it. That this moment is absolutely new. It is creation happening now. This is the Big Bang that we're witnessing. This is the let there be light moment. So what will we do at this moment? Will we divide it in order to conquer it, to have dominion over it? Or will we flow with it? Will we be in union with it? Here's a piece by Chris Davies, a member of the symposium, and read by Heather Lawrence, one of the members in the liturgist community that digs deeper into this idea. During the crazy events of our lives, from the jubilant ups to the perilous downs, it's easy to see life as a great journey. And what is a journey but a beginning and an end, a self-completing cycle? This cycle of birth and death unites us and gives us a common ground of experience. The cycle is not simply one life or even a collection of lives. It is the fractal reverberation humming at the seams within every aspect of reality. Every moment is a cycle. 
every day, every year, every stage of our lives, every week, the beginning and end of each moment take us back to right now, this moment. The book of Genesis is not only a profound metaphor for the creation of the universe in every moment, it's also a prescription for how to do so. And God said, let That's how each line in Genesis 1 begins. And God said, let. Let there be. Let the land. Let the water. Let us make. Let us be in this moment. There is no action required. No dogma to enforce. No rules to follow. Just let there be. Through each story in Genesis, the same cyclical motion occurs of birth, tension as duality, a major crisis to overcome, and integration into a greater cycle. The story of creation is at the heart of every day, every week, every lifetime, every moment. Every beginning is a unique and powerful journey, and every beginning shares the same wonderful fate of having an end. This terrifies us, this end. In the end, it's nothingness. In the end, it's formless and empty, darkness over everything. So God said, let there be light. In every end is the beginning, the self-same reflection, smiling back at ourselves, This emptiness utterly challenges and at the same time defines what it means to live. It's scary, truly. And this emptiness, this murky and unknown silence that thunders through us, just happens to be what connects us. That is the tool that Genesis provides for us. The prescription of wholeness, the self-completing cycle, What better way to utilize this tool than with our own breath? The Greek word for breath, pneuma, literally translates into the spirit. And in Genesis, we see that God gave life to man through breathing. That is, life is breath, and breath fills us with the spirit. In every inhale is a Genesis. Tension arises and then an exhale as everything fades to past. In the space between breaths is darkness. That darkness is the reference point for a new genesis, a new breath of life. In the great stories of our lives, this moment is the only thing we can know for sure. This moment is the entirety of reality joyously resounding through the infinite depths of now. All we have to do to begin again and return home is breathe. There are so many ways to interpret a story, so many meanings that can be made. 
When we discussed the Garden of Eden story with some of you listeners in preparation for this episode, we saw just how many different perspectives and interpretations could arise from the story of a snake and an apple and being cast out of paradise. Some were helpful and some were hurtful. Some people saw symbols of colonialism and the idea of being pushed from their land. They saw patriarchy overtaking the feminine. Some saw a story about environmentalism and taking care of the gift of the earth. Some saw it as a step out of union with God into duality and separateness, the tree of knowledge of good and evil representing duality. And in realizing that they were naked, they realized that they were separate and shame was born. Some saw it as a lesson that suffering begins when we start to think that we need something outside of ourselves in order to be okay and to be happy. And when we look at all these meanings, we're not trying to find the right one and then force everyone else to see it that way. There's an inherent beauty in the fact that we all see things a little differently through our own unique lens. It's not about finding the most true meaning that matters, or even the meaning that the original writer intended. It doesn't really even make a difference if this really happened at some point in time somewhere, or if it's pure myth. There is a phrase used in regards to statistics that says all models are wrong, but some are useful. And in a way, all stories are also wrong. But can they be useful in this present moment? And can we find the ways in which they're not useful and in fact have caused suffering? And can we let those meanings go? In regards to the Garden of Eden, the most resounding wound that seems to be caused by this story is shame. Hi. My name is Kevin Miguel Garcia. My pronouns are they, them. I am an author, podcaster, spiritual reformation coach is mm-hmm. what I've been talking about my work as. And I uh, live in Atlanta, Georgia. And I love talking about talking about and helping cr- people create spiritual practices that are outside of like the strict Christianity they may have grown up with. And yeah. That's that's the that's the long and short of it. Got my masters from a from Columbia Theological. I'm a Scorpio Enneagram eight, and I had tacos for lunch. So beautiful, <laughs> awesome. So we're we're talking about some good old Genesis Adam and Eve stuff. Ooh. And yeah, excited to hear your thoughts. So I guess to get us started, I would love to hear how the typical application of the Adam and Eve story has impacted you in the past. And mm. do you see any valuable meaning in it now? Oh, yeah. Let me tell you what. I <laughs> actually love the book of Genesis for a myriad of reasons. First of all, it was I can't like I can't believe that like I took it also literally for so long because just like, even a, a non close reading it doesn't make logical sense. You're telling me that there was just another woman out there in the world for Cain to get married to that didn't come through Eve. It does it doesn't line it doesn't up, Brenda. I literally was confused about that when I was like ten. I'm like, excuse yeah. me, this does not. And they were just sense. like, and they were just like, well, you know, maybe uh, like I can't remember what lame excuses they used, but just like they never accounted for. It Was it. his sister? <laughs> 
It's just com- oh, casual yeah. incest. It's fine. I'm sorry. We're going back to the original question about Adam and Eve real quick. Yes. How it originally impacted me, it gave a very clear thing like, okay, God created them male and female and God joined them in the garden. And that was the first marriage. Mm. That was the thing that was always said to me. That's the first marriage right there. Even though God did not pronounce them man and wife, God had no ceremony. God did not walk anyone down an aisle. God didn't even make them promise to be together forever. Mm-hmm. And so I knew as like, you know, a young gay kid, uh, or I felt like, okay, that can never be me, or I have to figure out how to make that me. And so for me, like, you know, I was in ex-gay therapy for 12 years, trying to fit into the mold of what it meant to be a biblical man. And I just, I, f- I didn't fit in. And then like, you know, fast forward, you know, to me coming out uh, and kind of like leaning more into like my non-binary identity. It's like, I really saw myself outside of the norm because it's just like, well, now I can't even have like what I would perceive to be a, <laughs> at first I would say, I can't even have a normal identity. I can't have a normal gender. There's, well, no, Kevin, because you're not normal. You're a weirdo. I say that, I'm joking with myself. (laughs) What it's done for me now, though, looking at it, looking at the Genesis story, you know, now granted, this is like a whole seminary degree later, and also reading a lot of actually Jewish texts about Genesis, understanding that Genesis can be seen as the headwaters of creation, not just like, you know, so God created them male and female, but then like from a river flows estuaries and, you know, from like the mountaintop, all sorts of creation came forth, you know, just because like, you know, like, you know, God created the night and the day, but also what is between that, the dusk and the dawn. Are you saying that that is unholy or is that just a part of the in-between that God did create? Hmm. The other way I see it, I put myself in Eve's shoes a lot and Eve is like, you know, I got to understand, like, if I'm in her shoes, I would likely do the same thing. You're to, like, if I'm, if I heard that this fruit is, like, first of all, it's beautiful, and I am a creature who desires beauty, who doesn't? You know, it's, like, you can make you smart. Oh, my God, who doesn't want to be, like, intelligent and know things? And you will be like God, you know? But it's not, the fruit wasn't the problem. It was the belief that something outside of yourself could bring that satisfaction to you, perhaps. Mm. Or... Maybe it's the perhaps the idea that every single human experiences this thing called desire. And when you desire something and maybe you don't get exactly what you want, it's just like, I feel like sometimes desire is this like byproduct of thinking that you need something else, if you will. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Wanting anything sometimes brings a little bit of suffering to it. And we all will want that. And so... Perhaps the prohibition against the tree of knowledge of good and evil wasn't necessarily that God wanted to keep knowledge from humanity, but to keep humanity from their suffering. However, the allegory would say like, yeah, we're all bound to desire something. We're all bound to pursue something and then also feel like we have to be ashamed of, you know, doing something we know isn't going to complete us. Mm-hmm. I don't fully understand it, but again, I don't see it as a literal story. So yeah, and it's funny when you when you take it out of the context of being a literal story, it alleviates a lot of the things that are problematic about it. Once it becomes just yes. this myth, like everything you're saying, it's a beautiful story about suffering mm-hmm. and desire and being in mm-hmm. a place where you're one with God and you mm-hmm. have everything you need within you, but then wanting this thing and this temptation, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, 
But then there's the consequence of, of the desires and the experience that that leads you into when you think that there's something you need outside of yourself, outside mm. of divinity. And when you take out the literal nature of it and make it something that's an allegory, it kind of alleviates that problem of the male-female duality too, because then it's about these two polar energies that exist within all of us. Mm-hmm. We can all lean into the male and into the female and explore all within. So I'm with it. I would love to dive into the shame aspect a little bit about what happens when when they eat of the fruit and then all of a sudden they like realize they're naked mm-hmm. and and they feel a distancing even before they're thrown out of the garden they feel like a distance mm-hmm. between them and the divine between them and each other and just wondering in your experience in that body and with your um identity and orientation and anything about for a number of reasons that you might not meet the the culture's normative uh, demands of you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Have you experienced shame as a result of not being able to play neatly within what they want you to be? And and, and how has that been related to even, either the story directly or even kind of the, the way mm-hmm. that the story was used in your life? the way that the structure of the world that you inhabited was formed and shaped by this sort of myth of like, this is how things are. This is what's good. This is what's bad. This is where you need to belong within that. What's been your experience with shame in relationship to all of that? My initial thought kind of goes to um, the first time I was, I realized I was attracted to boys. Um, And then also like the first time I kissed a boy too, like I, I had this uh, cycle I would go on where it would be, you know, feel really, really lonely, you know, quote unquote, act out. That's what we called it in ex-gay therapy land. I would act out and then I would feel shame and I would come back and I would repent. And then I would give my whole life. I would rededicate my life to Jesus for the umpteenth time. I really mean it. I won't be gay this time, Jesus, for real. Um, But it was one of those things where. I relate so heavily to the feeling of being naked and ashamed. Mm. That hits home for me in like a really big way because I remember when also like um, trigger warning for people who want to talk about it. I'm just going to talk about my coming out story to my parents. It was a little traumatic for me. It wasn't terrible. Uh, It was just sad um, for me. So if that's uh, something you need to fast forward through, you can do that. But, like, that's really the feeling I had. I was made to feel ashamed of what I was feeling. And then also, like, you know, like, the first time I actually had sex with a boy, at first, like, in the moment, it felt like magic. It was like, oh, my gosh, like, this is what people are talking about. This is what people, you know, go absolutely buck wild to get. And then as soon as, like, I, you know, basically orgasm and then immediate, like, this is bad. You are dirty. This is bad. You just sinned. God is displeased with you. God hates you. God hates this. This is an abomination. I remember one time I was getting intimate with a guy, had a full-on anxiety attack, and, like, jumped out of bed, pulled on my clothes, and left. Like, because, like, I had such a visceral reaction to my own shame. And, like, it was a lot of times, like, it was when I was naked, when I was really wanting... Like to be naked and with someone is like I just I, I it's a it's a visceral desire to be known in like in in our, in my body and to be told like uh 
that what what I was was wrong or bad, uh, it, it surfaced in my body and when I was trying to interact with it. So it was like, a lot of us are probably like have this, you know, feeling of whatever was good, whatever was pleasant, whatever was holy, run in the opposite direction because that can't be good. That has to be something that has to be from the devil. And so that really fucked me up for a long time. And when I think about the story, when I hear like Adam and Eve like hid from God because they were ashamed. And they said, God said, why did you hide? Because like, we were naked and we were ashamed. And God says, well, who told you you were naked? Mm. And that's the thing that I want to, I, I, I get stuck on is like, okay, so like we were naked and ashamed. So their point of shame is the nakedness itself, right? And so like, what is my point of shame right now? It's my sexuality, who I'm attracted to, who I find attractive, who I want to touch my body, who I want to be naked with, if you will. And so it's like I hear God listen, like speaking to me, hiding in the bushel and saying, who told you that was bad? Mm -hmm. Who told you that the way that you love somebody is not worth celebrating? Who told you that? It wasn't me. Somebody with a Bible somewhere yelling, probably. Not me, though. And that, to me, is like, I wonder, like, you know, if, like, you know, I know it's an allegory, but just, like, you know, I have, like, in the tradition of prophetic prophetic imagination, like, what if, like, they came out of that moment and came back to God and said, oh, yeah, we don't have to be, we don't have to be ashamed. God's like, yeah, you don't have to be ashamed, you know, so you know what's good and what's evil. That's okay. But I wonder if, like, you know, like it says, like, they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves, further separating themselves, covering up the thing, their point of shame, rather than letting God see it. And to be seen, just to come back to the reality that there was nothing to be ashamed of. And maybe because of their separation, they had to leave. Well, like, because in that separation, they were already outside of peace. Mm. They were already outside of pleasure when they had to hide themselves. God didn't have to toss them out. They were already gone mentally, physically. They couldn't have enjoyed that space anymore. And it is until we are willing to come naked back to spirit, naked back to our truest self, and to be able to see ourselves fully as we are, unashamed of anything, to realize that none of it really matters because who told you you were naked? We've all got a point of shame. And God comes to each one of us wanting to welcome us back at least i think so that's what i get out of that story now <laughs> <laughs> so beautiful oh. just a little life-changing <sighs> nugget of Ooh, wisdom that got me in my yeah in my eyeballs i didn't expect to go there <sighs> me too mm. yeah you can take a moment it's gonna feel yeah i'm good i'm okay. good keep going um what do you think is the next step that is needed to create mm. a more sex positive and inclusive culture? Ah, yes. This is my kind of question. I really do love talking about sex. I really do. Almost as much as I like talking about Jesus, which is probably why I haven't got laid in a while. Let's be <laughs> honest, you know? <laughs> God. Um, what do we need to do to create a more sex positive world theology community? And now, I mean, like, let's start with acknowledging that we have shame. We have felt shame around it. 
it being sex. See, I can't even, we felt shame around sex and sexuality and desire, like the desire to be sexual. Like, and we have to just acknowledge that, like, we've been trained in a certain direction. Um, and so it might take a while for some of us to retrain that part of our brain to move past the shame aspect and into connection and freedom. And something that um, Matthias Roberts talks about in his wonderful book, Beyond Shame, uh, which is subtitle Creating a Sex, uh, a Healthy Sex Life on Your Terms. Um, he talks about the idea of con- like connection versus disconnection. Shame causes us to disconnect, to want to hide, to, you know, sow our fig leaves and run out of, run away from the presence, you know. And, you know, if we want to put that in, like, communal terms, run away from each other's presence. We want to hide ourselves when we feel shame. What pushes us towards connection? You know, Brene Brown tells us, vulnerability. But really, like, that's true. Like, you know, what would it be like for us to come into the light with all of our stuff in our quote-unquote nakedness with our points of shame and just say, hey, this is the thing that I'm struggling with, maybe. And, like, you know, for me, for example, I'm somebody who is a survivor of sexual assault. And so when I'm intimate with people, I tell them up front, hey, if I'm going down on you, just don't put your hand on the back of my head. I've got some weird trauma around that. That's all I have to say. And then I can fully enjoy my experience of giving head. You know what I'm saying? And I think we also mm-hmm. need to get that casual with talking about things we enjoy. Because it's not that big a deal. Mm-hmm. Um. But it's being real about the fact that we have trauma, finding help for that, finding either help through like mental health professionals. Yeah. And also just like, you know, address the trauma, address the shame. And then I think we need to start having conversations and seeing examples maybe of what health, like really modeling what healthy communication looks like within healthy, like just if you can teach healthy communication, you can have healthy relationships. I think the things I have learned the most to be honest, is I've learned the most about communication and relationships from reading about polyamory and non-monogamy from books like More Than Two and The Ethical Slut. Those are the, you know, those are the two Bibles of the poly and non-monogamous movement, probably. <laughs> but really, it was through those poly, books. Poly Secure is a good one, too. It's a new yes! one. Yes! Yeah. That's someone else suggested that to me, so that's on my list of things to get. But that really has... Um, shaped my kind of like ethic of how I try ethic. I don't like that word as much, but like, I, I don't like saying rules either, but like things I try to do, like I name what I need and I know that I have to meet my own needs in the end. Uh, I, I name what I feel and I know that I am responsible for what those feelings are. Even if somebody pissed me off, how am I going to care for the feeling and the, the inner child who is threatened right now? And then the last one, which I ever, it was like the, the line that changed my life across the board in life and in the bedroom, I can always ask for what I want if I'm always okay with hearing no. And that to like, what if we had that? Mm-hmm. The freedom to be okay with hearing no from somebody? Like, let me tell you what, I, I'm somebody who shoots my shot 100% of the time. And I get shot down a lot, but like, <laughs> you know, sometimes I get, sometimes I get lucky about it, but it's really, it comes down to the fact that like, I'm not really afraid of rejection anymore. And it kind of comes back to like, stupid as it sounds, my secure relationship with God, <laughs> um, because I feel so, so like happy within myself and like, and granted, like, you know, this is me on a good day, you know, it's sunny outside. I did my meditations and whatnot at my best. I feel okay and connected and like at peace with God and humanity and everything else. 
And I don't. And if I get rejected by this person, you know, at the bar, remember when we went to bars? <laughs> oh my oh, god! Yeah, I know. R.I.P. Um, but if I get rejected by some dude, you know, anywhere, he's not really rejecting me. He's rejecting an offer. He's rejecting, uh, or not, or, or he's just saying no, thank you to an offer. Because maybe he still wants to be friends. Anyways, I think we need to be okay with hearing no. And I, I think the thing we need to be, get okay with especially if we want to like get more sex positive is we got to learn to ask for what we want, not just what we need and what, and, and naming our feels, but also what do you want? Mm. You know, and being okay with that and, and being okay with like the consequences of what comes after that. And the consequences might be wonderful, you know, um, you know, like sex is, you know, sex has risk, like every single action in life, you know, intimacy and vulnerability have risks, like everything in life. And it's a matter of, do I want to take that risk? And if the answer is yes, because the reward could be, you know, as little as orgasm or as much as the love of your life. Who knows? Mm. You know, that's ask for what we want. Be okay with hearing no. Get some therapy. And then I think education, too. I think there's just like, if we could just like, there's, you know, there's a lot more wonderful, beautiful, sex positive uh, like intersectional intersection of you know post evangelicals and post Christian or you know still Christian progressive sexual ethic people that you can follow on the internet um, like Erica Smith Erica Smith sex ed on Instagram she is one of my favorite humans out there she does the purity culture dropout program um like follow some sex education accounts read some books and then ha- start talking about your sex lives more openly. Honestly, like if you want to be more sex positive, be positive about your sexual experiences and have and be around people who will also celebrate those wins with you. I feel like there's something interesting there, too, about this correlation between judgment and shame, where we judge others, Mm -hmm. people's sex lives because of the shame Mm -hmm. that we feel within ourselves. So within that, too, there's this learning of like, if you feel triggered by something someone else is sharing about their own sex life, that's a time for you to check yourself. Yeah, and that's data, baby. What am I judging about myself? What shame do I feel in myself? And why do I care at all about this other person's Mm -hmm. life that they decide to do whatever they want to do? So the yeah. judgment how piece. am i threatened yeah am i threatened by them that's the real question i love bringing to people mm. it's like how are you threatened by me yeah and also just like the fact that it's like all the people who like it's like all the people who say like you can't be a christian and like and i'm just like mm, okay fine but it's just like you're that threatened mm-hmm. like i don't look at you and say you can't be a christian like <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, too. It's perfect for this conversation because I feel like the reason a lot of people do that is based on literal interpretations of the Bible. So it's like circling back to like, this is why we have to change the way Mm -hmm. we view these stories so we can have a little more freedom and grace within ourselves and others to take what is helpful and leave what is not and focus Mm -hmm. on yourself in the present moment and let the rest go. That's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Kevin is, by the way, another member of the symposium that is assembling for this Reformation work. And you'll be hearing more from them through the season. Speaking of symposium members, you're going to hear from some more of them in these next few segments. First, we're going to hear from Audrey Assad, who many of you know already. She's an amazing artist and has been on the show before. She'll be sharing part of an unreleased song called Desire with us. 
And following her, you'll hear the voice of Latifa Alatas, another amazing artist who is also part of the symposium. She'll be reading a poem that was written for the episode by a non-dual Catholic Hindu mystic who goes by the name Magdalene. And then after that, Emily's going to close us out with a little meditation. So let's actually, let's just do the credits really quick now, because I want you to be able to just kind of leave this episode in the in the space that it ends, which is a very beautiful space that Emily's going to create for us. So just want to say a thank you to all the people who made this episode possible, to the symposium, to the patrons, to all the readers and guests. What a pleasure it is to do this work with all of you. If you'd like to join the Liturgist community, please go to theliturgist.com and join us. Meet us at the Sunday thing and let's talk about all this stuff. Um, Tejas Lair Hayden helped edit this episode. It was produced by Emily Capshaw and myself, Michael Gunger. As we go into these next segments, I just encourage you to keep your heart and mind open and allow these technologies, these stories that we've been handed to see if they could take a different sort of shape within us, inviting us into this very moment. It was Jamie Lee Finch who first told me my body was a person, and I had no idea how I'd been treating her. I'd been feeling distant from her, my body, for so long. She was Eden, the garden of my origins, and I was Eve, banished into exile by my own stories of separateness from union with God and from her, my body. Dissociation became my normal state of being. It was further entrenched into my consciousness as good, as holy, as being right with God to be separate from her. I was taught not to touch my precious body for fear of tainting her purity, instructed to keep my hands off of her, rather than learning from my elders to experience divine union through the sacred act of self-love. It was wrong, they told me, and I not only believed that, but I preached it on stages to women and men younger than myself. I know now that it's time to begin telling a better story about what it means to love her, to be her, to be with her. This song is one small act of reunion, of reclamation, about stepping back into Eden, into my body. She, my body, was never dirty or separate or banished. We have always been home. We have always been one. I feel a drinking of the thrill of power. She opens to my touch just like a
Genesis, Fever Dream. In the beginning, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And in the crack of that splitting, God, with pearly teeth, rent the flesh of an inky apple of his eye, and he saw that the light was good. In that splitting, God saw. He gained a vantage, but gotten not made, God birthed separation and distance between self and self that divided light from dark, judge from judged. A chasm formed into which the delights and agonies of separation swirled and eddied. He saw that it was good. The splitting, the seeing, the judging. It was good. And with judgment, shame. All part of that cacophony, the tang and the taste of the flesh and seed that waited, ripe and baited for the curiosity to stir. Heat rising, wind moving, sweeping over water, stirring the impossible face of God and stirring in the void a rippling of desire. God desired, he wanted to know. He made light, tore her from his very side, pouring water and blood out of himself to illuminate the dark. He was no longer alone. He could see. He knew how to name good and evil. And in the cold shock of it, eyes wincing into life, air burning the new wet lungs of creation, slapped and gasping, he was exiled from the dark. From the deep recesses of his velvet womb, he leapt forth in faith. And it was a terrible love, an unsurvivable love. In the self-begotten protest of life that foretells death, God named and pointed at his image, naked and mewling. He pointed from his vantage at the sins of the son. Adam wanted to know, like his father before him, the curiosity and desire, the apple not far from the tree, he pointed. They made me do it. I was tricked. They said they wouldn't, but they did. And in his wounded righteous wrath, God the victim exiled self from self. His reflection sent scurrying from the teat, naked and needy, out into the world, wandering, begging for husks, curious, ashamed, separate. And God saw that it was good. Adam and his bone and blood walked into the world to subdue and multiply, to dominate and kill to make sacrifice of sweat and burnt flesh, lambs of penance and atonement, God's image in back alley John trying to transact forgiveness, to return to the breast through monopoly and merit, buying love like angel dust from sweat-slick children and glittering gods, Baal and Brookstone, brokers in the temple marketplace, supplicants of God the Father who sires and saves, gazing down upon the failings of the Son, But shame is a tricky minx. Shame marbles itself into the self and cannot be forgiven by any but the bearer. And so all the burnt, fragrant flesh in the world, all the proxy victims and baubles of virtue only pile upon themselves a babble tower of nonsense, impotent and unable to consummate or consecrate love until self forgives self in an alchemical reclamation, a sacramental remembering. Who am I?
Let's start by getting into a comfortable seated position, closing our eyes, starting to shift our attention inwards. And we can begin to notice our breathing. Notice how it naturally falls in this moment. And you might notice that it's possible to both breathe and be breathed. If you consciously try to breathe, you can do it. You can make that breath happen. You can actively here and now be the creator of your breath. But if you move your attention away, the breath goes on. The breathing becomes something that's happening to you or through you. And as we play with this, we can use it as a teacher, showing us that the involuntary experiences and the voluntary experiences are the same. So often we see what is voluntary as us and what is involuntary as them. But the self and the other are inseparable. As we observe this breath, may the separation begin to dissolve. As we observe this breath, may we see that in this moment, we are both the creator and the creation. The only thing that creates a distinction is our own perception. this ability to consciously maneuver our breath, let's imagine that with each breath we take, that we're moving love into the body, moving spirit through the body.
between the breaths of being creator, you can pause and rest and feel that that love is moving through you and is all around you without you having to do a thing. part of your beautiful body that you send breath to, feel the sense of aliveness within it, and know that it is good. Breathe love into your feet, and know that they are good. Breathe love into your hands and know that they are good. Your legs are good. is good, your desire is good. for it is good. <laughs> 